From WDBM, East Lansing. You are listening to The The Undercurrent. Our weekly news and storytelling program. Made by and for the students of Michigan State University. You are listening to The The Undercurrent. Hello and welcome to The Undercurrent Season 11, Episode 6. I'll be your host, Cole Tunningly. Our whole show today is devoted to the global climate strike that took place this past Friday, March 15th. It truly was global. Over 900 schools ended up participating. I think the most inspiring thing about this particular strike is that it was spearheaded by the youth. It makes sense to me that those with the most years left on this planet would be the most angry. The strike on Friday proved, if nothing else, that there are a massive amount of kids out there 16-year-olds, 13-year-olds, 8-year-olds who are upset and thinking about climate change. Our first story today is by reporter Sophie Sake. She looked into the backstories of a few of the most prominent young folks in this movement right now. Here it is. When I was about 8 years old, I first heard about something called climate change or global warming. Apparently that was something humans had created by our way of living. Greta Thunberg is a 16-year-old Swedish climate change activist, responsible for the first school strike for climate in August 2018. Initially, she refused to go to school until Sweden's general election in September of 2018, hoping to encourage the Swedish government to commit to reducing carbon emissions in accordance with the Paris Agreement. After the election, she returned to school, but continued to spend Fridays on the steps of Parliament, handing out flyers and raising awareness. These Friday strikes gained worldwide attention and led to the organization of a global youth climate strike on Friday, March 15, 2019. In her TED Talk, Thunberg explains that she has been diagnosed with autism, OCD, and selective mutism. She says these aspects of her identity make it so that she understands issues like climate change in black and white. If the emissions have to stop, then we must stop the emissions. There are no gray areas when it comes to survival. Either we go on as a civilization or we don't. We have to change. Thunberg is an inspiration to several other standalone strikes. In New York City, 13-year-old Alexandra Villasenor has sat alone on Fridays outside the United Nations headquarters demanding aggressive action against climate change. She has braved the elements on the same bench since December 2018. Through the use of social media, Villa Senor connected with other passionate youth activists, including 12-year-old Haven Coleman and 16-year-old Isra Hisiri, to organize a national event demanding adult attention. It is possible that no one alive on Earth today has experienced a climate unaffected by human activity, but it is definitely true for the youngest generations. If the pattern continues, the youth of today will expect to encounter increasingly intense weather events, natural disasters, and diminished air and water quality, as well as other effects. Adults keep saying, we owe it to the young people to give them hope. But I don't want your hope. I don't want you to be hopeful. I want you to panic. I want you to feel the fear I feel every day. And then I want you to act. I want you to act as if you would in a crisis. I want you to act as if the house was on fire. 
because it is. Villa Senora, Coleman, and Hirsi are the co-organizers of the U.S. Youth Climate Strike. Groups in almost all 50 states participated, joining thousands of other student groups around the world in the global youth climate strike. The actions of one girl that started with sitting alone in front of a parliament building in Sweden transformed into a movement of young people on every continent. Friday, March 15th, teens and preteens in at least 112 countries in more than 1,700 locations were expected to skip school in the name of climate action. One such mobilization took place on campus of Michigan State University. Cole Tunningly reports next. We have not come here to beg world leaders to care. You have ignored us in the past and you will ignore us again. We have run out of excuses and we are running out of time. We have come here to let you know that change is coming, whether you like it or not. The real power belongs to the people. Welcome back to The Undercurrent. I'm your host, Cole Tunningly, and today we're talking about the global climate strike that took place last Friday, March 15th. As Sophie said, I attended the strike that happened here at MSU. Students and members of the community met outside the Hannah Administration building at 11.11 a.m. The people gathered there got to hear speeches from different members of political and environmental groups in the area. We talk about climate change in a passive sense. Climate change is happening. The earth is dying, but it's not dying. The earth is not dying, it's being killed. There are people we can point to who are killing the earth. There are corporations and politicians we can point to who are killing the earth. Knowingly, they have this blood on their hands. They're knowingly robbing us of our futures. It's not passive. Here's John, an MSU student, describing the scene. There's like a handful of people, uh, or a couple dozen people, standing around. A few have signs and banners. Um, earlier a cop came by and told the, the organizers that they can't use speakers because they didn't get a permit. And that, was, that sucks. I guess, don't know where the cop's off to now. And maybe more people will show up. It's kind of unclear, but I'm a little disappointed. As time went on, a few more people did eventually show up. I talked to a woman named Mariah, standing next to a group of her friends holding a banner. Uh-huh, Mariah McLean. Oh, we're out here around the issue of climate change, and we're determined to stop its progression. Uh, it's dangerous to everyone. We've had it, and the ordinary system is not going to take care of it. Our political system is not taking care of it. So we the people... We're up again, speaking out, and we really are happy to see uh, organizations of young people. In fact, we're so thankful we can hardly tell you, really, honest to God, uh, because we've been, you know, we've been plugging away at a lot of things throughout the years, and definitely have made, you know, done some good things. But this is such an overwhelming issue. We really need everybody involved. And now, of course, we have a proposal at hand. of the the Green New Deal, and so we really want to lend support to that because it is really, it's really good. That proposal is really good. I don't know if you've had a chance to read it, but it's, uh, well, it is exactly what has to happen to bring health back into our world. And so it's getting bashed by the kind of traditional culture, 
and that we're you know we're gonna keep putting pressure on them until they get it and that's that's that one of Mariah's friends seemed really impressed with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez one of the people really pushing for the Green New Deal uh, she's so intelligent and she has great communication skills she's not afraid she's fearless uh, incredibly intelligent educated just very impressive you know, our, our, our youth will save us. Contrary to Mariah and her friends, John seemed less than impressed with the Green New Deal. Better than nothing, I guess. I, I think we just need to start guillotining CEOs. All in all, it was good to see people standing out there in the cold, on campus, speaking up about their fears and about their visions for the future. Well, I think what makes my blood boil even more than climate change deniers and the things that they say or do are the people who acknowledge climate change is real and yet decide to do nothing about it because they are so inclined to follow their moderate incremental policy proposals that it gets to the point on the verge of insanity. The Undercurrent will return in just a moment, but now, your weekly impact update. First is Lexi Soro with your national news. Last week, Lori Lachlan was accused of bribing the University of Southern California for the college admissions of her two daughters, Olivia Jade and Isabella Rose. Both Lori and her husband, Massimo Giannulli, an American fashion designer, are out of jail on a million-dollar bond. If they are convicted, they face a potential of up to five years in prison. Since the allegations went public, the girls have stopped attending classes at the university with no intention of returning. The scandal has cost Olivia Jade at least one major brand partnership and risks losing more. Backlash from this scandal has impacted Olivia's income and reputation as a YouTube influencer. There is talk of resentment between the girls and their parents. Later news broke that Olivia claims she was pushed to go to college against her own desires and now is left to deal with the repercussions of the situation. Isabella, on the other hand of it all, faces not a loss of income, but a roadblock in her pursuit of a career. With your national news, I'm Lexi Soro. This has been your weekly impact update. And now, back to the undercurrent. Welcome back to the show. Remember, if you like what you're hearing, you can subscribe to The Undercurrent on iTunes, or you can find us online at our website. That's impact89fm.org slash the hyphen undercurrent. That way you can listen to any episode you want, any time you want. There's over a hundred of them now, full of stories from the MSU community and the surrounding areas. I'm sure you'll find something you like. And again, you can subscribe on iTunes, or you can find us at our website. That's impact89fm.org slash the hyphen undercurrent. Coming up now is the debut story from reporter Taylor Halterman. She went around campus asking students about their least favorite and favorite classes. Here's what she found. I would have to say my favorite class would be ISS 210, which is Society and the Individual. The teacher was just really passionate about what he taught, and uh, he really put his emotions into the content. Uh, I think my favorite class is probably my IAH class. It's a race and identity class. I find it really interesting. So, yeah. 
Probably international finance 441 uh, is EC 441. It was really hard, and uh, I also got a four point. So, and it was a subject I also really enjoyed. I mean, international finance for me is I really enjoy it. So, philosophy. Uh, it was different. I mean, I'm a neuroscience major, so I've been doing science like all my four years, and I took it last semester. That class was cool. It was different than the typical chemistry, physics, stuff like that. My favorite class was probably Business 250. I was able to learn a lot about myself and also about the business world as I'm starting to go into it. Uh, my favorite class that I've taken so far would be uh, multicam production with uh, Lisa Whiting in the uh, College of Media Information. It's fun and then you learn a lot and then it teaches you how to use a camera and then a lot of other things. My favorite class at MSU is Avatar Psychology for Designers, and I think it's my favorite because we get to learn about um, the background of game design and especially the avatars within uh, in games, I guess, and in the virtual world, and we get to learn how to design them and their behaviors and our expectations for certain avatars. Um, but I think it's just like a really cool background and a different take on virtual worlds and like how we're treating them. My favorite class is one of my James Madison classes. It's uh, conflict and cooperation in Latin America. My research focus is Latin America, um, and it was taught by a Colombian professor, so we got a very interesting perspective on a lot of the different conflicts in Latin America that was rooted in someone that's actually Latina instead of a Western view on what's happening. My favorite being my CSE 335 class. Definitely learned the most relevant stuff in that class and it's really interesting and it's very nerdy and I like that a lot. My least favorite is my history class on the modern Middle East just because uh, my professor she has a tendency to ramble and be really excited about things that she hasn't fully explained yet. Probably Calculus 1. It was just the web work was tedious and I just didn't like going to lecture or the recitation. At least, man, there's <laughs> about five of those. It would probably be my math class that I took last year. It was boring. <laughs> it was so boring, like, and then, I mean, it was fairly easy, but it was just super boring. Least favorite class, ooh, definitely gotta go with CSE 101. It was hard, required a lot of work, and I spent more time stressing about it than I did actually studying for it. My Spanish 150 class. It's fully online, so we don't have any like speaking practice or really li any listening practice, but then all of our projects is, our, is like a speaking, making a video. So then we get graded on our pronunciation, but we don't get any training on pronunciation. <laughs> so it's an interesting class. Physics, uh, I hate that class. I hate physics. I think the way they teach it at MSU is not the way you should go, but that's just that's just my opinion. Chem Lab 161, but it's required, or at least labs are required. The classes are really long, and most of them are at bad times of the day. Probably like visions of the universe, just because like I don't care, and I didn't want to take it, and I was just it just didn't matter to me, and I just it was just like whatever. Like I I mean I don't know. I didn't care about photons, and like gamma rays, I was like, whatever. That was reporter Taylor Halterman, and I'm your host, Cole Tunningley. Coming up next is a story from the Public Radio Exchange. Enjoy.
From the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, this is Pitt MedCast. Welcome to our read aloud of Inside the World of OCD. I'm Elaine Vitone. In this episode, we revisit our fall 2015 magazine feature written by Kara Massey, read by intern Elena Zakos. The alarm went off at 6 a.m. Instantly, the question pushed into Hilary Zerba's head. What am I going to wear? She slipped out of bed in precisely the same manner that she did every morning, on the right side. Then, she approached her closet, the question still pounding. What am I going to wear? Zerba, a 30-something woman, picked out an ensemble and then pressed it under a hot iron. But something wasn't right. Although the khakis and plaid shirt were fine last week, today they just didn't feel right. No, she couldn't wear this to work. Zerba picked out another pair of slacks and a collared shirt, ironed those. Then she decided on another outfit, ironed it. Would she look perfect in this? She wanted to look perfect. Plus... She felt that nagging fear she's had since childhood that if her outfit wasn't just right, something bad would happen that day. It was the same wicked dread that led Zerba to quit crayons and coloring books for good as a preschooler because she thought she might fail to color perfectly. The fear that she'd been bad, that it would be her fault if bad things happened to her parents or siblings. The fear that if she didn't turn around 16 to 32 times before getting into bed, things would go bump in the night. Nearly two hours have passed, and Zerba is still at her apartment, selecting clothes, ironing, starting over again. What am I going to wear? She has to be at work in an hour, and she's still not dressed for the job. She hasn't eaten breakfast. The kitchen. She hasn't gone into the kitchen. Not the kitchen. Not today. She can't handle the fear that something awful will happen if she enters the kitchen. Sometimes this fear leads her to skip meals. She's afraid to tell anyone about her distressing thoughts invading her brain. But maybe someone could help her get through the morning? She calls a friend. Can you help me get breakfast? Zerba is a young professional who holds a master's degree, golfs regularly, volunteers, and laughs a lot. She's also a person living with obsessive-compulsive disorder, or OCD. The disorder is characterized by a tug-of-war between obsessions and compulsions. In OCD, obsessions are intrusive, often fearful thoughts, like Zerba's fear that she'll have a bad day if she doesn't choose the right outfit in the morning. Compulsions are repetitive behaviors or rituals that people with OCD often engage in to try to control their obsessions. Initially, the rituals may provide temporary relief from the fixations, but as they become more frequent, the actions may disrupt daily living. They can become embarrassing and exhausting. Even though many people with OCD may recognize that their compulsions are senseless, they engage in them for hours at a time. The outfit was horrendous, a mashup nightmare, the sort of getup that only a four-year-old could pick out and unabashedly wear in public. Purple paisley boots, 
plaid pajama pants and a Superman t-shirt. The cringe-inducing combination upped Zerba's anxiety. Not only was the color combo hideous, but the clothes hadn't been ironed, and now she was being dared to walk in front of others, wearing that. Zerba's therapist gently coaxed her out of the unironed, absurd outfit. On one level, Zerba knew that she could walk out of the room in the ridiculous garb and everything would be fine. But on another level, she felt paralyzed. It felt physically impossible to step outside in the hideous outfit, like when she tried to tell herself that it would be okay to go to the grocery store or enter her kitchen. But the wicked dread stood in the way of even hunger and won. Then... Finally, Zerba put one purple paisley boot in front of the other and walked out the therapy center door. She made it down the hallway before her anxiety stopped her from going any farther. Another day, she wore the outfit outside the therapy center. Later, she and her therapist walked farther from the building, where strangers were passing by. Finally, after a month, Zerba went grocery shopping with her therapist, wearing that. At her anxiety level, well, it had gone down to about a 2 out of 10. Everything, Zerba recalls, was okay. All of my nerves were made of steel when I had them at all. Now I'm just faulty wires shot out behind the wall. Pull the rug out, I won't fall. Pull the rug out, I won't fall. What happens in the brain to lock people with OCD into their rituals is still not known. But a team of researchers at the University of Pittsburgh is using clinical observations and new neuroscience tools to extricate a deeper understanding of the disorder. My name is Dr. Suzanne Amari, and I'm director of the Translational OCD Laboratory at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Led by Suzanne Amari, HIT's team is striving to help patients like Zerba who have, at different periods in their lives, been consumed by OCD. When first treating patients with OCD, Amari was surprised and humbled by how severe and debilitating the disorder was. For instance, at one point in her life, Zerba was in the grip of obsessions or compulsions almost constantly. Amari learned that the treatment options available for OCD are limited. The family of drugs most commonly used to treat mental health conditions, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, only provide remission in approximately 10% of OCD patients, and mild to moderate improvement in 30-50%, to she says. There's also exposure therapy, which makes patients confront their fears, as Zerba did when behavioral therapy coaches sent her out in public in a mismatched outfit. Patients who are able to complete the treatment can have great results from it, but it's incredibly difficult for patients to do. And qualified therapists with enough time in their schedules to offer exposure therapy are often unavailable. Although there are good services in Pittsburgh, Zerba traveled to Boston, staying three months, because she required intensive and lengthy therapy. So Amara began hunting for other solutions. In her work as an assistant professor of clinical psychiatry at Columbia, she began focusing more on OCD. What I really love about the patients that I've worked with is that they're very interested in the research. They're very motivated to understand what's happening in their own brains. In the lab at Columbia, Amari conducted a study on OCD circuitry that yielded surprising results and landed publication in Science. The 2013 paper described her team's finding that to see increases in OCD-like behavior in a mouse model, certain brain regions need to be stimulated repeatedly over time. Just a few minutes per several days did the trick, 
yet Amari had initially thought that hyperstimulating the regions once might be enough. This unexpected finding, Amari says, provides some insight into her own clinical observations and those of other psychiatrists. OCD symptoms may gradually emerge over time. It seems that relevant brain regions are first repeatedly activated by triggers in the environment. The paper's findings may reveal more on the wiring of OCD to ultimately help pharmaceutical researchers find better drug treatments. In 2013, the same year that the science paper was published, Amari was recruited to Pitt. Her team is among the first in the world to use a tool that's blowing the neuroscience field away, a mini-microscope that can record activity in real time from hundreds of neurons. What this allows us to do is basically to have streaming video from the brain of a mouse. Now we're not looking at one neuron at a time. We can look at up to 200 neurons at a time, and we can look at them over the course of weeks or months. The microscope can peer inside the brain, and we can see what language or code they're using when engaging in behaviors related to OCD. Her research team can watch communication between groups of neurons or individual neurons. It's like having the ability to listen to an entire orchestra. And then choosing to listen to one section of violins or cello. And then homing in even further to hear every single player on a solo level. So far, Amari's team has just preliminary results from the mini-microscopes. On a golf course, Zerba concentrates on the ball near her feet. She swings and pops the ball into an arch trajectory toward the green. She watches it land, then carries her bag toward it. Hitting the ball, watching it land, inching closer to the hole. These are the only things she thinks about while on the course. There are no added rituals, there are no obsessive thoughts. She is only thinking about the here and now. Golf. Zerba's grandmother taught her to golf in the backyard when she was eight years old, and then she took up the sport more regularly in college. She now tries to get out for at least a nine-hole round every day. Zerba says that golf relaxes her and has helped her to become healthy. It creates a space for her to practice the art of mindfulness, of living in the moment. In the winter, when golf courses are dormant under snow, Zerba has found that she's able to practice mindfulness through cooking. As a result of her hard work and intensive exposure therapy sessions, she's no longer afraid of the kitchen, and she can get dressed without panicking or changing ten times. Some of her obsessions still show up, but they faded into the background. When they do become louder, she is confident that she doesn't need to pay attention to them anymore. Zerba, now a licensed behavioral therapist, opened a private practice recently. After years of studying, training, and improving her own health, now she specializes in helping children as young as three overcome OCD, anxiety, and phobias. I love being a therapist. It's the best job I could possibly have in the world. Understand the depths of OCD and the pain and then be able to help people is very rewarding and unbelievable to me from where I was. 
On her desk, she keeps a box of her grandmother's golf balls. It's a reminder of what Zerba calls the beauty of the game. If you swing and miss or send the ball into a bunker, it's okay. All you have to do is adjust your grip and swing again. Thanks for listening. This story first appeared in the fall 2015 issue of Pit Med Magazine. You can find it on our website, pitmed.health.pit.edu. That's pit with two T's. And while you're clicking about, check out our audience survey. Our story was written by Kara Massey, read by Elena Zakos, and produced by Elena Zakos, with yours truly, Elaine Vitone. Our executive producer is Pit Med Magazine Editor-in-Chief, Erica Lloyd. Our magazine is published by the University of Pittsburgh's Office of University Communications and the School of Medicine. All rights reserved. Sound effects courtesy of freesound.org and Cosmic Embers. Special thanks to Brenna Evans, the Medfield High School Orchestra, and Kara Massey herself for acting as our musical neurons. And lastly, thank you to the Pittsburgh band Blood Mod for the episode's theme music. Well, that's it for this week's show. If you liked what you heard, you can find more of it online at our website. That's impact89fm.org slash the hyphen undercurrent. I'd like to give a special thank you to our general manager, Jeremy Whiting, our station manager, Olivia Mitchell, and our programming director, Simon Ferenzi. And thank you also to you, the listener. I'll be here, same time, same place, next week. <laughs>